from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Now, today we are talking about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I did do an episode a few months ago with my friend Andy Kindler, who is a comedian who suffers from OCD, and it was great to get his perspective of what it feels like for him, how it moved through his life, what it felt like in his body when he was having OCD experiences, what he's come to now after getting treatment. But I also wanted to talk to someone who is a specialist in OCD so that we could really 
dial down into the nitty gritty of what exactly is obsessive compulsive disorder and what are the many, many ways that it can manifest. And I'm sure in this interview, we have only scratched the surface. But what I enjoyed in my conversation with Kimberly Quinlan is that she talks about what is perhaps the most normal OCD symptom is unwanted thoughts. And I actually, if you'd asked me, I would have thought it was more the hand washing and the, you know, germ phobia, contamination phobia. And she said, well, those are pretty common. What most people rush to seek treatment for are the unwanted thoughts, thoughts that they might harm someone they love, thoughts that they might, uh, you know, harm a child, that they might harm their partner, someone in their family. And it's it's difficult to talk about because it sounds like the minute you say that, right, someone should lock you up and throw away the key. And what has been discovered in OCD treatment is that people who have these thoughts are the least likely people to do anything about it because what they're worried about is what if, because they it is the last thing they want to do is to harm someone especially someone they love. And it's really debilitating and it disturbs people and it's it's tough. So she talked all about having a sense of humor about it and how that is actually part of the treatment, that it may seem like it's such a big deal to be having these thoughts, but again, the key component of it that makes it obsessive compulsive disorder and that makes it harmless is that It is an intrusive, unwanted thought. And so you may find this very interesting if this is something something that you've been living with, you've been afraid to talk about it. Hopefully this really brings it home for you that it is normal, common, very treatable. And so a little bit more about my guest today, Kimberly Quinlan. Her website is linked in the show notes. She does compassionate science-based treatment for OCD, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders. We didn't even get into anxiety disorders and eating disorders today, but of course you can go to her website and learn more about it. Today we really just focused on obsessive compulsive disorder involving obsessions and compulsions. And again, an obsession is an intrusive and unwanted thought that creates significant anxiety and discomfort, and a compulsion is an overt or covert behavior done in an attempt to reduce the discomfort of the intrusive thoughts and feelings. And so even though Kimberly Quinlan practices out in California, she does have her own uh, kind of online school where you can take courses to get treated for obsessive compulsive disorder. So again, that's in the show notes, but her cbtschool.com has online resources for obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, hair pulling, skin picking. She has online video courses, mindfulness for OCD, an OCD online course, overcoming anxiety and panic, a time management course. So check that all out because even if you are unable to find a therapist in your area or get to a therapist, you can begin doing some of the exposure therapy work by taking a course. So Let's get right to it because Kimberly is, she really knows her stuff. She's totally brilliant. And I think you will enjoy learning 
about exactly what OCD is and what it isn't. All right, I'm going to start out with what I think is, you know, hopefully not too basic and boring of a question, but can you just define OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder? Sure. No, that's not a basic question at all. It's actually a really important question Mm -hmm. uh, because to have OCD, you need to have a certain criteria of things. So number one, you have to have obsessions, but obsessions aren't like I love Lego or I love sweaters or I love Oreo (laughs) cookies. Like I'm obsessed with binge watching Netflix. Like it's not that. That is what an obsession is. But in the terms of OCD, an obsession is usually an intrusive, repetitive and unwanted. So it has to have those three pieces. Um, And it usually shows up in the form of a thought but it can also show up in the form of a feeling or a sensation or an image that keeps popping up into your brain. Um, Or it could even be an urge, this sort of urge that comes up and overwhelms your body. So you have to have that first criteria to have the obsession and you have to have a compulsion. Now, a compulsion is a behavior that we do um, to reduce or remove uncertainty or anxiety or any form of discomfort, even maybe even disgust. A a big misconception is that that compulsion has to be physical. So we know sort of Hollywood OCD, which is like jumping over cracks, washing your hands, counting objects. They're all great portrayals of having OCD, but there are other ways in which people can do compulsions that are actually completely unseen by the eye. Like one really big one is mental compulsions, mentally ruminating and, and resolving and trying to solve problems in your mind. Another one is simply avoidance. So some people, you, a, a lot of people, unfortunately, who have OCD will go to a doctor and they'll say, you don't have OCD. I don't see you doing anything. I don't see you doing any behavior. But this person has avoided 50% of their life, right? And that's the compulsion that they do. And the other one is reassurance seeking. So they're constantly Googling or asking for reassurance from a person, you know, did this happen? Could it happen? Will it happen? Did I do something wrong? So so there are many ways in which a compulsion can show up um, that our society isn't aware of. And then the D part, disorder, what I mean, that's just the name of it, obsessive compulsive disorder. So is there anything in the D part that makes it the disorder like that you have to look for? Yeah, well, to be diagnosed with OCD, it has to disrupt your life and your functioning to a degree that is problematic. Um, you know, some people will often say like they have some symptoms of obsessive and compulsive they have the behaviors, but it's not to the degree in which it is disordered, meaning there is now lack of order, um, that it's not debilitating their life, taking away their functioning. So the people that I see are usually coming in there, doing it for more than one or two hours a day. Most of the time, it's taking up many, many, many hours of their day to the degree where they've lost some functioning. So that's sort of where the word disorder comes into play. And that's true for any disorder, anorexia, depression. It's usually, you know, the symptoms have started to impact my well-being. And do you like the name obsessive compulsive disorder? Does that work for you in terms of um, what what it is that, uh, you know, the people you treat and what they have and what it's called? Do you find that that's like an accurate description of it? 
a lot of people with OCD find that the disorder's name actually describes even the treatment, right? And the way in which we treat it, because it helps identify that there are multiple components of this disorder and that we have to look at each component in order to treat them really well. So I, you know, we look at other terms like anorexia nervosa. It's like, that doesn't even, that's just syllables matched together to make a certain word. Like it doesn't really even make any sense. But with this case, it does help us to identify the two core pieces that are showing up. And you have to have both. And then it also, it helps us to sort of put forward a plan. Um, So I, I, I mean, I think that the problem with it, if we were to look at both sides of the coin, is because it's so misunderstood and stigmatized. I know a lot of people who don't like the term because Mm. of the stigma that go with it. But in terms of the correctness of the name, I think it's wonderful. And you are an OCD specialist. And I've heard you say, I've I've listened to some other interviews you've done, that, that there's very few of you in that sense who kind of... I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth. You didn't say it like this, but like you kind of know what they're doing. True. You know, is is it hard? <laughs> is that true? Okay. Um, tell me what makes I have you. Said that okay, great. Times. Tell me, um, tell me what sets you apart from other people that think they're treating OCD and 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 why it's so important to. I don't know. I guess go see someone like you as opposed to just any kind of therapist or anxiety specialist. Yeah. Well, uh, what I will say before I start is is thankfully over the last decade that I've been specializing in it, we've had such growth of more therapists. So, you know, I, there are so many therapists now who are trained and correctly, you know, supervised and so forth. So thankfully that's going in the right direction, but the OCD community has still a crisis on their hand. It still takes seven to 14 years to get correctly diagnosed. That's a lot of years. So that, that means that these people have sought treatment from some other kind of therapist, maybe even doctor, and the person uh, has not even named what they have as OCD or they've been named with OCD, but they're, they're not getting the right help with it. Both. Both. So a lot of people will be declined the diagnosis and therefore can't get the treatment because of the misinformation around the compulsions, right? Like you don't have OCD. You can't. Your room's messy. You can't have OCD. Okay, right. right. So like or, what you were saying before, they, they're they not noticing. They're, they're they not up know. to speed on the other compulsions. Yeah, yeah. So there's that group. They're the other group who get told they have OCD, but then may be referred to a, a, a form of treatment that, you know, out of the goodness of their soul have tried to help. But often what they're using is techniques that actually make the compulsion and the disorder worse. So uh, with the treatment of, of OCD, we actually purposely face our fears. That's the gold standard treatment. It's called exposure and response prevention. But if you're not trained in that, naturally, any human, I'm sure before you listened to this episode or knew anything about OCD, naturally your instincts would be, oh, if you have a fear, that sounds really painful. You should avoid it more. Like, can we figure out a way? Like there are even apps that have been created to help people take photos of their stove so that they know for certain they've turned their stove off or they've locked their door. And instinctually, that makes sense, right? Like, well, if you know you've locked your door, you shouldn't worry. But those behaviors 
actually act as compulsions and keep the disorder going. So it's it, it mm. goes against the recovery. And so that's where there's sort of, a, there was a crisis and we are working our way out of it in educating mental health and medical professionals to, to direct people to the correct care because it can go so wrong. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I haven't talked to anyone yet about exposure therapy. It's been casually mentioned in other episodes I've done, but the focus wasn't that, so I, I didn't really follow that trail. And I know that it's it's probably obviously different with every anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. And but where it's been brought up has been episodes that are more centered on panic attacks and things like yep. that. Yep. Um, so I'm sort of familiar with it in terms of what I've done for panic attacks, but can you tell us what is exactly, you said exposure and what? Response prevention. 
Tell us what exposure response prevention is. Sure. So um, exposure and response prevention, we call it ERP for short, is where we, so go back to the obsessive and compulsive part. So we expose them to their obsession, right? So that's pretty easy, right? Mm -hmm. You identify your fear. We find a way to face your fear. Back in the day, we only used to do exposure. We go, okay, if you're afraid of dogs, go and hang out with dogs. Or if you're afraid of germs, go and touch germs. But what we found there was that's only really 50% of the work because then they just go and do all these compulsions to undo their fear or reduce or remove their fear. So the response prevention is where once you've exposed yourself to your fear, the response prevention is targeting eliminating those compulsive behaviors. So not only would you you know, touch germs or be around germs, but then you would reduce and remove the compulsive hand wash or the rumination or the reassurance seeking or the Googling and that kind of behavior. So both must be a part of treatment for the treatment to be really successful. So if I come to you, um, how soon do we get into exposure therapy? Is it session one? Uh, usually session two okay. or three, depending on the complexity of the case. So we always want to do a thorough assessment, make sure we have the right diagnosis. We also want to do a ton of education because let me ask you, how how excited are you about facing your worst fear? Not mm-hmm. excited. <laughs> no, I mean, I think of um, a couple, I'll say a couple of my worst fears I think I'm pretty excited about them because I don't need them in my life. So they don't debilitate me, mm-hmm. but I used to have a fear of flying mm-hmm. and I was not excited to face that, but I did. So that's the thing. So anyone, I always say to my patients, like no one wants to see me. No one likes to come visit me. No one likes to come and be my client, but yeah. they want to get better. And so that's why they do. And so I have to do a lot of education about what is OCD, what is exposure and response prevention, to build trust with them because I'm going to ask them to do the thing they absolutely don't want to do, rightfully so, Um, and probably the thing that frightens them the most. And usually OCD attacks the things we value the most. So if you value Mm. your relationships, it'll target your relationships. If you love your job, it'll target your job. If you love your children, it'll target your children. So because I'm asking them to do really scary things and things they value, I do give them some time and education. But I also emphasize the faster we can start getting you to face your fear, the quicker you recover. And so Mm. it's sort of a little dance that we do together of trust and courage and repair and like it's an encouragement. It's, It's a dance that we do together. And I just realized in my example I gave about, you know, I had a fear of flying and I did do some exposure therapy for that. I'm not really talking about OCD. So tell me, like, I had to physically get exposed to an airplane, get on it, touch, you know, whatever, touch the outside of an airplane first. I had to look at it. But again, I wasn't dealing with an OCD issue. I was dealing with a phobia. So what are you being exposed to in obsessive compulsive Uh, disordered people, like what are they being exposed to when they seek exposure therapy? If someone's having um, intrusive thoughts, emotions, or urges, which maybe we should define that before you tell me how you do it, um, I'd love to know because I'm assuming the exposure therapy is different than like for a phobia. Right. So there are multiple 
different categories of types of OCD. Again, majority of people know about contamination OCD, which is the fear of germs and bodily fluids and so forth, things like that. Um, Other people know about symmetry obsessions, right? Which is like lining things up and making sure things are very straight and perfectionistic, Mm. right? Um, Other people know about checking obsessions around danger. You know, will I put the, you know, if I don't unplug my, um, my hair curler, will the house set on fire and I'll be responsible for, you know, terrible, terrible things. Um, So we know about those, but in fact, they're the lesser concerns that we see in our practice, right? Mm. We see a lot of people have uh, obsessions around um, harming people. Mm. And this is a very common one. Usually when I do interviews like this, I get like an influx of emails from people going, oh my God, I never thought I had OCD until you said like these obsessions because no one had conceptualized them as OCD. So Mm. harm OCD is actually a really common one. It usually, the obsession is what if I harm somebody that I love or a person in my life? The thing to remember again is the, the thought is unwanted repetitive and distressing like we talked about so people who have harm obsessions are probably like the sweetest people in the world the thought Mm. of this is so just heartbreaking and for them it's repetitive like it's all day in their head in their head in their head and so for ERP for that example we would expose them to often the people that they're having thoughts about yeah right and then the response prevention would be not to do those safety behaviors like, you know. Ah, okay. So don't do the safety behaviors that they used to do to try to stop the thoughts, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, you know, and exposure can be just about very simple, like go and be with the people that you're afraid of being with. In some cases, it needs to be more aggressive if they've got very severe OCD um, of, you know, having them chop vegetables because for them, they've avoided knives for months or years in fear that they are not, you know, responsible with a knife. Like that they're just going to go crazy and run Mm -hmm. down the hall and stab their husband or something. Exactly. Exactly. So we also have people with sexual obsessions, particularly around orientation. So let's say if you're uh, heterosexual, you may be fear that am I, you have a lot of uncertainty around am I gay or straight? Again, think of OCD, we call it the uncertain disorder. It usually thrives on uncertainty, right? So the more uncertain you are, the more anxiety you feel. So you may have fears around that. In that case, we would expose you to the thoughts or the feelings or the sensations. And then you would practice not engaging in avoidant safety behaviors or ruminative safety behaviors. So there's just a couple of examples. There's probably 20 common ones that could be related to religion. Um, it could be related to existential, like you've, the obsession around what's the point of life. Um, it, there, there are many ways in which these obsessions can target. It could be a relationship obsession. A lot of people with relationship obsessions ruminate on whether they will cheat on their partner or ruminate on whether they've picked the quote-unquote right one. Um, and then, it again, and for some people listening, they may, may be like, but I do a little bit of that, right? So it's important to know that 
people who don't have OCD may be having these same fears, but not at the at the degree of repetition or extreme, like how extreme it is. And then you're able to manage that uncertainty. For people with OCD, they very much struggle to stop doing compulsions around the obsession. And that's when we would intervene. And with someone with like, for example, the relationship obsession, uh, you know, intrusive thoughts about relationships, it's not even based in any real thing, I assume, where it's like, gee, you know, this isn't working out for me. We have different life goals. I mean, it's really not based in the same um, reality that someone who goes, oh, I have that sometimes. It's like, is it that like you could be with the perfect partner and having no problems, but your mind is just going and going? Yeah. So from this is a little bit of psychoclinical talk, but, but there is a term called ego dystonic and ego syntonic. So for people with OCD, their obsession is clinically ego dystonic, meaning the obsession doesn't line up with their values. So Uh just as you were saying, often a client will come to me crying, sobbing in disbelief, and they'll say, it makes no sense. I love my child so much, but I can't stop thinking that maybe I'll harm them. So you can see that it doesn't line up with their values. And that's why it's so distressing um, because it's so confusing. Egosyntonic is where you have a thought or a feeling or a sensation and urge that does line up with your values, right? Um, And so people with OCD, their obsessions are usually ego dystonic. Um, So if that helps sort of clarify, they usually will say like, it makes no sense. I really do care for my partner. I don't know, understand why I'm having these obsessions about cheating. Or I love, it could be again, religion. Like I am so committed to my religion, but I keep having this intrusive image of a sin or so forth. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As part of my anxiety journey, I... I've dabbled in some OCD thoughts. I know exactly what an intrusive thought feels like, and it's terrible, you know? How does someone know who's just sitting at home hearing this? The difference between that and what it would be like to be maybe schizophrenic and you're hearing voices saying, go push mm -hmm. this woman in front of the subway. So how does someone know? I mean, I would assume the difference is, like you said, it's they don't want these thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're not, like, excited by them. Um, so does that mean that people who are going to harm people, like the thoughts feel different? Like, how does someone know when they're, if they're just listening? Well, I think I think, number one, don't if, if listeners, if I could offer one piece mm -hmm. of advice is don't try and figure that one out on your own. Um, try and seek out somebody who can yeah. do a good assessment on you, because one thing to know is if you have anxiety you will most likely at some point think you're crazy. Like they, they just go together. It feels, you feel like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. I have anxiety myself. Like, so you're not really probably the best person 
as an anxious person to assess yourself, I would always encourage you to go to try just even if it's just for the assessment and just mm-hmm. get the assessment so you know specifically what you meet criteria for. The other thing is, is because OCD is around uncertainty and targets uncertainty, often people with OCD or some of the other anxiety disorders then question the diagnosis. A part of their obsessive and compulsive disorder is questioning whether or not they have OCD and maybe that this is just a a mistake and they really are a killer or they really are a pedophile, right? So that, that in and of itself is also a symptom of OCD. Most people who meet criteria for OCD question their diagnosis at some point. So in terms of doing an exposure therapy, so let's say, okay, we're ready to do it. Um, you know, I'm ha- like you, the woman, you, you know, an example of, of a woman who's sitting there thinking, ruminating over, is this the right relationship for me or something? And, or someone who's worried about harming someone. If, do you give them suggestions of what to do and then they go home and do it alone or does exposure therapy, like, does anyone ever have their therapist with them in the situation yeah. or you send them out on their own kind of thing? Oh, listen, I, and I say to all my patients, this was pre-COVID, of course, but yeah. I always say to them, like, the walls of this office, when I used to be face-to-face, have seen everything. Like, mm-hmm. All the exposures have been done in this room. So, yes, we do it. Often we will do it together because I want to be able to coach the person through the rise and fall of discomfort. So it's like a wave, right? You'll Mm. do the exposure. And then if you practice response prevention, you're going to have to ride out a big wave of anxiety, similar to I'm sure you felt on the airplane, right? Oh, my God. Right. And so, yes, we'll do that in session. But we are pretty clear at the front end of treatment like, this is homework heavy therapy. Recovery isn't going to therapy once a week. Recovery is doing around 40 to 90 minutes of exposure and response prevention a day. Oh, right? wow. Okay. Yeah. Homework. A day. Yeah. So, and that doesn't have to mean you have to schedule it and do nothing. You could be doing exposures while you wash the dishes, or you mm-hmm. could be doing a lot of what we do is. You know, here is a great example um, to use the harm example. If let's say you have a fear of harming your baby or your husband or your wife or so forth, is as you're washing the dishes, you could sing to the happy birthday song like, I'm going to hurt my my husband today, doodah, or whatever you mean. Like mm-hmm. you can you can be exposing yourself to the obsession in your mind while you drive to work, while you have a shower, and so forth, right? Um, the work of exposure therapy is to change the way you respond to a thought. So instead of responding to it with importance and and terror and, you know, that it has to be solved right away, we actually solve it by either treating it with no importance at all or making fun of it being creative. People with OCD and anxiety are usually super creative people. So we'd be creative with it. And like you said before, you could do exposure therapy by being around the people you're afraid you're going to harm. But now it sounds like in the homework section, you're washing your dishes and you're exposing yourself to your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. And I love this because I love the notion of not giving the thoughts importance. And, you know, like we hear this all the time in so many different ways. You know, if we're doing mindful meditation, we don't have to latch onto the thoughts and get distracted. 
in anxiety. We don't have to believe the thoughts that we're dying right now during this panic attack. So it all always boils down to the same thing that we have um, maybe not control over the thoughts coming in, but we can control how we react to them. It's always about that, right? Right. And what I love about this is it's so counterintuitive as was as is panic disorder recovery is like, I'm sorry, did you not hear me? I am thinking of harming my husband. And it's like, no, no, you're not thinking of harming your husband. You're obsessively worrying, what if I did that? Almost the way that like, if you're in church or something and you have this thought, like, what if I just screamed fuck right now, you know, in the middle of Christmas Eve mass. And, you know, I think the average person has had those weird little moments and then it goes away. Actually, I just had a session with a patient where I said exactly this, which is your thoughts aren't the disorder. The disorder comes when we respond to them as if they're super important and need to be taken away and stopped. But people without OCD have the same OCD thoughts that people with OCD have. Um, Yes, there's some cognitive and and actual physiological differences in the brain. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is they go, huh, that was a weird thought. And then they go on with their day. People with OCD have the thought and they go, this must mean something really important. And I, right. it is my responsibility to make sure this doesn't happen, right? And so, that in again, in that little place is where we intervene and go, let's have some fun with this. Again, I, I, I laugh, like I always joke with clients, like, no one wants to see me. Like it's it's terrible to have to see Kimberly because it means you have to do really hard things and you're gonna have to face some really hard things. But we can also find some really great, creative, fun ways to do this, right? If you're afraid mm-hmm. of screaming out fuck, you could, you know, write the word out. If you're afraid of certain things, you can, you know, get your I've had clients write full scripts about their obsessions and turn it into art. I've had people, you know, turn it into poetry, purposely staring their fear in the face. You know, it's funny. I'm in comedy and I'm a writer and I've been doing it the whole time I've had anxiety and I treated my anxiety with such reverence, you know, that it was like, never the two shall meet. There Mm -hmm. shall be no laughter or creativity about (laughs) my anxiety. And there wasn't until a few years ago, finally, literally decades, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll apply a sense of humor to it, which is why I wanted to start this podcast. And I had the psychiatrist who was the guy that prescribed my medication for 20 years. And seriously, a lot of the time he would say things that I would go home and just get so upset about because I think he went to school for this. I need a more serious doctor. This is, he is not, he is bad at his job and people are going to die because of him. And now I realize, no, he was trying to appeal to my creative side and he was right. So it's like, I kept thinking he was saying, do something easy because he was saying, do something creative. And it's not easy. No, Like you have to first admit that you're wrong about how you're thinking about this. And I guess I just, I don't know. I didn't want to be wrong about it or just thought if I try this silly thing and it doesn't work, then I'm really screwed, you know? Yeah. Well, naturally, I mean, I want to validate you because fear is a response to danger for, and that's what we've developed. We've grown in all these years because of that, right? When the wildebeest ran at us, fear showed up and we knew to run. And so when our brain now in this evolved world shows up with fear and there isn't an imminent danger, 
we it naturally we're going to be like let's take this really serious like this is what kept us alive for so many years and has allowed us to evolve so it must be important and worthy of our attention so it's hard to flip the switch on that right it's mm-hmm. it's hard to treat fear like it's a thought and um, that is counterintuitive so, so it does take some time and trust to sort of make that step but once you make it then you're off and you're running so with OCD, like, is there a spectrum, you know, it's like to like least severe to most severe, or is it like, oh, you can have some of the symptoms, but not all of them, or is it different than other anxiety disorders in that way? No. So, so yes, we have like mild, moderate, and severe, mm-hmm. but no one obsession is different than the other. In fact, we treat them all the same. Um, the severity is very much person dependent. So it really just... Oh, Im- I see. So it doesn't matter really what the symptom is. It's all the same, like you said, reaction to uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, it depends on the degree in which it debilitates you. So some patients might say, oh, I have a small fear of germs. COVID was a big trigger for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Like I have a small fear of germs, but I can handle it what really bothers me is this other obsession. Whereas, and and often, this is something to think about too, is when I used to run groups for OCD in my internship, you would have a group of eight people with eight different types of OCD. And the guy over here who's having harm obsessions or pedophilia obsessions or sexual obsessions, like more of those, like things that we don't know about, he would sit across from the guy with contamination and be like, I wish I had contamination. I could totally handle contamination. That would be so much easier. And the guy with contamination is sitting across from him going, what? If I had your type of OCD, that would be so much easier. So I think the thing to remember is the suffering is the same for all of it, right? It's all the same degree of suffering in that it's you have to tolerate high levels of uncertainty, high levels of anxiety. Often there's a lot of shame associated. Um, so no, we treat them all equally. So when you say uncertainty, I mean, obviously that's life is the most uncertain thing. When you say that OCD targets uncertainty, like what exactly does that mean? So let me dig down. The The person who says, you know, oh, I'm, I'm ruminating, I'm obsessing over if my husband is the right person for me. I mean, unlike the, the more, quote, normal person who's like, oh, I think that sometimes, like, to me, that seems like the, quote, norm, normal person is having some moments of uncertainty, whereas mm-hmm. the OCD person, it's not real uncertainty. So am I getting this wrong? Like, wh- what do you mean by it targets uncertainty? Well, similar to like you talked about with the ego dystonic piece, right, is uh, clients will often say like, I don't want to hurt that person or I don't want, you know, I really love my partner. Mm -hmm. So they may even have some really great ground in knowing who they are in that moment. But it's the uncertainty that really gets them. Oh, of like what? I don't know if I will or not. I don't know what the future will hold. Right. And that uncertainty is really painful, right? And it's repetitive. It's not just like, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You've got to solve it. You've got to solve it. Like in their head, it's like, think of it like um, in if you had the radio station in the background saying, 
but what if you want to? What if you want to? What if you want to? What if this isn't right? What if bad things are going to happen? What if? And it's all mm. uncertainty based, right? It's it's often focusing on you might lose control and bad, bad, bad things are going to happen. And so, um, and that's true for any anxiety disorder. But mm. for people again with OCD, it tends to be more repetitive and dysregulating, right? Yeah. Because when you have that degree of discomfort, naturally your instincts will be, well, let's just solve this. Let's figure it out. But when you f- figure it out with a compulsion, means you've treated the thought like it's important, which means now your brain thinks it's important and you're stuck in a loop. So if someone has OCD, um, that isn't the obvious kind, I'm washing my hands, I'm checking the stove, if it's more like the ruminations, like what if, what if, what if, what could like their worst day look like? Like they call in sick to work and they just sit in bed and, and kind of ruminate all day until like they can't mm. eat, sleep. I mean, is that kind of what happens? The best way a client, um, m- multiple clients have explained this, but a client once said to me, it's like you have a jigsaw puzzle and your entire life is dependent on whether you can finish the jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And no matter what you can do, you cannot get the pieces to match. Like in your mind, it feels like if I just get these pieces to go in right and I get the final piece in, then I can have relief, but they can't find it. And then what they're tolerating with it is not just uncertainty, it's the, the distress of that and the, and the frustration of that. And then it becomes also about, they may, you know, sort of it targets your identity. Like, what does it mean about you if you keep having these thoughts? You must be a mm. terrible person. Who thinks about sexual thoughts like this all day? What kind of human are you? And because you can't solve the puzzle, you're left with this massive mess of just thinking. And so it could be just laying in bed ruminating. For many people, it's repetitive actions like asking reassurance over and over and over and over and over again, even though you know they've answered it. As soon as you ask the question, mm-hmm. the uncertainty just comes right back. And it's not just like, oh, maybe uncertainty. It's like urgent uncertainty. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. 
We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't mean, it's like, where does this come from? But is there a known reason why, like, someone may develop OCD as opposed to, like, a phobia of driving or something like that? Is there any kind of genetic reason or nature-nurture thing? Both. So we understand there is a a nature and a nurture component. So genetics are very strong. If you have a family member with OCD, you're more likely. But the truth is, think of, we think of an umbrella And Mm -hmm. the umbrella is what we call OCD-related disorders. So OCD is under there, as is panic disorder, health anxiety, phobias, hair pulling, skin picking. So there are many other disorders that fall under the obsessive-compulsive umbrella. And often genetically, you will have one or more of those disorders. Social anxiety is another one. Um, So yes, there is a genetic component. There's also a nurture component in that if you were raised with very, of course, like strict rules and and strong, very strong beliefs that can can impact it. What we know scientifically about the brain of someone with OCD is think about everyone can just imagine in your brain is a pair of brakes and an accelerator, right? Mm. And everybody has intrusive thoughts, right? But for the person with OCD, they their brake system is not connected very well. And so it's really hard to pump the brakes on those thoughts, right? That makes sense, yeah. And 
their accelerator is a little overreactive or overactive. And so when you have those thoughts, it presses the accelerator really, really fast. Imagine um, this is not physiologically correct. As as you know, we don't have brakes and accelerators in our brains. But imagine <laughs> right. our, our brain has an, an accelerator. So when you have an, an OCD and you have a thought, it's like they've pushed the brakes and they're going strong, like really loud, really repetitive and so forth. So that we know that this physiological part is happening in their brain as well for reasons yet we don't understand. Yeah. Do you think that like, I mean, it sounds like every anxiety disorder when it gets down to it is fear of the unknown. It's like a big existential crisis that we all have, right? We all have our different disordered ways of dealing with it. And some people aren't even bothered by this, you know, who knows. But do you think if if we had certainty in life, like if we had every answer we wanted, that we would just find a way to still have all of our anxieties and OCD? Oh, like I'm sure that wouldn't be enough either, right? Or that would be the cause of our stress or something. Well, and let me use OCD as the perfect example. So let's say there's another kind of OCD called need to know OCD. And so it's often Ooh, like- Oh, I love I've never heard of this. Yeah. There's many different subtypes, but one is called need to know. So it's not even that there's a danger involved. It's just that their brain is saying, but I just need to know. So like example might be the one that I was given when I was in training is like, let's say someone has the need to know about a certain brand of toilet. Like it could be as random as that, but the urgency and the urge to find out the answer is so strong and so uncomfortable I don't want to minimize this. It's so painful. They just have to go and fi find out. Like, I just have to know. Mm -hmm. So they go and they check and they get the name of the toilet or they get the name of whatever it is that their obsession has targeted. And so, whew, okay, I got it. I relieved it, right? But it only takes one millisecond for the brain to go, are you sure? Oh. Are you sure? So imagine you go, okay, like health anxiety is another example of this. Oh, what if I'm dying of cancer? So you go and you get the MRI and then all that has to happen is as you're walking out of the doctor's office and he says you're as healthy as can be, all you have to do is have the thought, well, what if the doctor missed it? Mm. Or what if the MRI machine wasn't working well that day? Or what if um, I didn't answer a question correctly? And that meant like it only takes one thought to undo all of the certainty that you got. And that's a very typical experience of OCD. It sounds like a real control issue, too, in the sense of like, if, if I do this correctly, I will get the absolute right answer and then I can rest. Well, most anxiety disorders are caught up in what we call cognitive errors or cognitive distortions. And often one of the most is black and white thinking, like it has to be all good or all bad, right? So, yeah. so those distorted thoughts can often fuel our urgency to get certainty or relief. Does OCD ever get confused with other disorders? Like do people get misdiagnosed. So you've mentioned, I think that, you know, in the seven to 14 years to get mm -hmm. it right, like what are common things people get misdiagnosed with? It could be, unfortunately, anything commonly. ADHD is a common one because people report difficulty with concentrating, you know, racing thoughts, you know, yeah. it's very common for that to be, and, and vice versa. People who have an actual diagnosis of ADHD can sometimes be diagnosed with anxiety as well. Um, so, 
often ADHD, sometimes bipolar, um, often mostly generalized anxiety. They'll get a generalized anxiety mm. diagnosis. Um, you know, it could be any diagnosis, right, that they could be misdiagnosed with. Most commonly, what I hear is more of the dismissive, like you don't have a disorder, you just think too much or, oh God, you know, like <laughs> you need to, you know, you need to eat this whole grain diet and this this sort of um, quirkiness will go away. So it's more of that kind of thing. And so what are some treatments for OCD? We've talked about exposure therapy. Is is there like a most successful or is it a combination, you know, is there a great medication for it? What do you see in people who are really recovering? What are they doing? Right. So the gold standard treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention. However, if you can match that with an SSRI at an OCD dose, that's your golden combination. Mm. If scientifically, if you had to choose between medication and ERP, you would choose ERP. It has better outcomes, right? Um, but that's what we know at this date and time. But what we've really learned in the last decade is there are also these supplemental treatments that can elevate the ERP and the medication. And they are mindfulness practice, as you've mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, also acceptance and commitment therapy, um, which is uh, an amazing supplement to ERP, which helps you to, number one, practice some very under the lens of mi mindfulness skills, but also helps you to define what your values are. So instead of doing compulsions, you would engage in value-based behaviors, um, which is really wonderful. App like Another way for us to frame ERP is not only we're not going to take away your discomfort and just let you sit in terribleness, we're actually <laughs> right. going, we're going to actually pivot towards the thing that you value and you want in your life. Um, so that's really wonderful. There's new research now around adding dialectical behavioral therapy, um, which is for those who struggle with regulation. So, so we're getting these new sciences every day that sort of help supplement and complement the work. Um, but at the end of the day, what I would say to to anyone with OCD is ERP has to be the focus because if you aren't facing your fear, um, it's likely you're avoiding it. And if you're avoiding it, you're doing the compulsion. Right. And you're like feeding it. You yeah, know? Exactly. And and so in the acceptance and commitment therapy, I love that. Is that, What does the word commitment mean? Is, it, is that like the defining your values part? Like yeah, so the commitment piece is not just committing to the values, but committing to the actual experience. So there's a lot of radical acceptance in there. Mm. It's committing to staying in the present and staying with the feeling instead of running away from the feeling. So commitment can take multiple, it can be multiple aspects to it, right? So imagine yeah. you're uncomfortable, you have to commit to being uncomfortable. You have to commit to not doing the compulsions. You have to commit to your values. Like there are many things that you commit to in that moment. I'm assuming you do a lot of um, helping people get acquainted with uncertainty or to the point where they're tolerating uncertainty and getting comfortable mm -hmm. with it. Is mm -hmm. that sort of the goal in all of this? 100%. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, um, yes, 100%. I will preface is last year I wrote a book um, called the Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD, um, published through New Publisher Publications. 
I wrote that book because number one, ERP sucks and is really hard and no one wants to do it. And so it is also important that you sort of, what I say is you wrap the exposure in self-compassion. Oh, that's Um, great. So I'm not doing, saying that as a plug. I'm saying it as more of because it sucks so bad (laughs) and, and because it's, so heavy lifting kind of therapy, it is important that you also have a gentle, compassionate approach to it. Mm. Um, that tends to keep morale up and motivation yeah. up. I think it's a huge piece of the work as well. So the compassion part isn't saying, you know, take a break. It's like, you're going to do this thing, but we're going to no, compassion doesn't say take a break. Right, That's right. the misconception of compassion. So let me let me just quickly say, so yeah. so compassion. If you really dropped into the compassionate person inside you, it never it doesn't say take. And of course, if you're sick and you're exhausted, <laughs> right. yes, it would say that. But when it comes to fear, the wise compassionate part would say. I got you. Let's face this fear. Like this, by facing this fear, you get your life back. Let's yeah. do that. That's the compassionate act. Um, so no, at the beginning of the book, there's a whole chapter on like compassion is not unicorns and fairies. It's right. facing fear and riding waves of really uncomfortable shit. But it's so rewarding and so empowering if you can do that. It sounds like it's just the opposite of like beating yourself up. Like you yeah. loser. What do you mean you're going to check your stove again? Like, come on, yeah. normal people don't do this. Like that's not a compassionate approach. No, it's very supportive and almost coaching. Like it, I call it like the kind coach. It It's saying, instead of saying like, get down and give me 20, you loser. It's saying <laughs> you can do this just one, t- one more minute. You can do it. Just stay on, stay with it just a little longer. We got you like, hang on. It's It's that kind of thing. And so in your work, how, I don't mean like, how long does this take? But, you know, someone out there who's like, okay, I'm going to go start going to therapy for my OCD. What can they look forward to if they put in the work? I mean, will they feel monumentally better in a year? Yeah. So yes, you should definitely see an improvement by a year. So a typical course of treatment for OCD I I don't like to kind of give dates because everybody's different. And if you've got um, extra diagnosis, it takes long. But under science, they say 24 sessions and you should have some pretty massive change, right? Wow, Um, that's great. Yeah, but I even go as far as to say like, what the way that we do treatment is very gradual. We don't throw you under the bus. We start baby steps and you get, you know, you get the hang of it and then you go for it. And what we do is we usually do a huge inventory of all the compulsive behaviors you do and we just work our way up them, right? Like start easy and you work your way, cross out the list, cross out the list. So often when people start crossing out these compulsions, that in and of itself is rewarding. Like, wow, I'm doing it, right? Like I'm starting. So I think real recovery is really looking at that list and getting it all the way down. But a lot of people will be shocked at at how even the first exposure of going, wow, I didn't do that compulsion and I faced my fear or maybe I even had the full-on panic attack and I survived, that in and of itself will change how they view themselves. They'll feel more empowered. Like it's a it's it's hard work, but it's so empowering and it's so like it's badass work. 
Yeah, I, I know in my own work that my self-esteem would just leap Yes, when, when I was able to say, I did this thing. And sometimes I'd, I'd have to not belittle myself and go, yeah. yeah, you got on a plane. Good for you. So does oh. everybody. It's like, no, no, no. This no, is, no, no. I'm a big girl. This is a big yes. deal. Like I have to celebrate that, you know. Yeah. Um, every yeah, win. Of course, every of win. course, it's easy to do something you're not afraid of. But like I'm even more badass than the people on this plane that aren't afraid because exactly. like, this is easy for them. But. Right. You know, I had to reframe it that way. And and so lastly, what should people look for, you know, when they're looking for um, a therapist to help them with their OCD? I mean, there's no messing around like that person has to have OCD in their I don't I don't mean title, but but it can't be like, oh, I just, you know, I do everything like that's not going to work, is it? No, no. No, we like I said, a thorough assessment can determine how much you can recover, right? And the truth is, um, it's also how honest you are. So often, you know, I have staff that work for me and we're constantly con consulting is a lot of times people don't even want to tell their therapist about their thoughts because they're so ashamed. So the more, the more you can be honest with your therapist, reach out and get an OCD therapist who treats using ERP. And if you can really just sort of, or let it come out, like just really be honest with them. You can make massive, massive changes. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it does require, um, first knowing you have OCD and being assessed correctly, but then it does require some work for sure. It, the crossover between talking about these things and the world I was in before of, of comedy is that I say things on stage that I think in my private mind. And I, I know it's going to be relatable because I know I'm not special. Mm -hmm. So if I thought it, so does everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's like a magic trick you're doing when you say confessional things. And then people go, my God, I thought I was the only one. And sometimes <laughs> I can't believe the things I say that people come up to me and go, I thought I was the only one. I want to go, really? You really didn't think anyone else thought this? You know, it's like... <laughs> And so it seems like in that same way, I mean, there's really, uh, it's like there's really nothing anyone could say that would shock a therapist, right? It's like the, no, the worst thought you're having, anyone out there, I mean, I hate to say it, you're probably not that special, right? No, no, I, 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 I love, I'm, I'm a bit goofy this way, but I love like um, those first few sessions where I say like, I I guarantee you won't shock me, and mm -hmm. and they they say oh but you haven't heard my thoughts <laughs> like you know like ah oh. and they when I always just love that moment when they do tell me and I'm like nah I heard better like <laughs> like <laughs> I've heard worse like I think that that is so true I think it's shocking to people that there are more I think because often the content of their obsessions are pretty scary but mm -hmm. no there's there's nothing I haven't heard, right? Um, and there's always those people who are so overjoyed that they're not the only one, which just shows you how much work we've got to do with stigma around mental health. You have this course that we were talking about before we started recording. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Right. Yeah. So um, I have a private practice. I see clients face to face. But what was happening is I was having an influx of people who I couldn't help. They either lived in out of this country, out of the state or so forth, or 
the fact that therapy is expensive. Um, And so out of sort of a sense of desperation, I decided I'd make a course basically explaining exactly how I would tell my clients the process. So remember, we kind of talked about like the Mm -hmm. first session is explaining what is the OCD, what is ERP, how you would put together like the list of all the compulsions. So it's called ERP School. Um, CBT School is the name of the website, but ERP School is the course. And it basically helps teach you how to put together a plan where they can start facing their own fears in their own time, in their pajamas, if that's how they want to do it from home. It was really great during COVID because, you know, it was hard to get access to care. So yeah, it's, it's some, I'm just so proud of it and happy to offer it. I'm so glad you do. Yeah. And anything we can do in our pajamas, I think is just really. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for enlightening me. And I'm hoping a lot of people hear this and they go, oh my God, I don't have this major, major craziness. I'm, oh my God, I can maybe live a full life and get some recovery. Oh my God, I'm not so special, but you're special, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you're, you're special, but your thoughts aren't. That was a lot of good information, wasn't it? I hope you're feeling a lot better if you relate to any of these symptoms and you've been avoiding getting treatment and just thinking something's really, really wrong with you. No, no. Uh, So here are some of the takeaways from my chat with Kimberly Quinlan. To have OCD, you must have a certain criteria of things. First, an obsession, which is defined by an intrusive, repetitive, and unwanted thought. Second, a compulsion, the behavior that we do to reduce or remove uncertainty or anxiety or discomfort, usually due to those thoughts. And third, it's a disorder, which means that the obsessions and compulsions are disrupting your life and your functioning to a problematic degree. An obsession usually shows up in the form of a thought, but it can also show up in the form of a feeling or a sensation or an image that keeps popping up in your brain, or it could be an urge that comes up and overwhelms your body. A common misconception about compulsions is that they have to be physical, like washing your hands, but many compulsions can't be seen by the eye, and one of the biggest is a mental compulsion ruminating, trying to resolve problems in your mind, and another compulsion is avoidance. People are often misdiagnosed by doctors unfamiliar with this who think that people with OCD are only displaying physical compulsions. There has been recently a growth of therapists who specifically treat OCD, but the community is still in crisis as it takes 7 to 14 years for someone with OCD to get correctly diagnosed. There are apps that have been created for people with OCD. For example, you can take a picture of your stove so that you know for certain you've turned it off or that you've locked your door, but that still acts as a compulsion and it keeps the disorder going. And a lot of these apps are giving people the opposite of recovery skills. The gold standard for OCD treatment is exposure and response presentation, known as ERP. I don't think the word presentation is correct. I think it's exposure and response prevention. And I don't know why I wrote, yes, it's prevention, not presentation. Forgive me. It'll be correct on my website. (laughs) So the gold standard treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention, known as ERP. 
You would think that I subconsciously have a presentation due or something. No, I really don't know why that word came up. Um, In ERP, the patient is exposed to their obsession. They identify their fear. They find a way to face their fear. And then the response prevention is that once a patient has been exposed to the fear, the RP targets eliminating the compulsive behaviors. But both must be a part of treatment for recovery to be successful. OCD attacks the things that we value the most. So if you value your relationships, you'll have OCD around your relationships. If you love your job, you could have OCD around your job. There are multiple categories of OCD. The majority of people are only familiar with contamination OCD, the fear of germs, or something like symmetry obsession, or checking obsessions around danger. Like, if I don't unplug my hair curler, I'll set the house on fire and be responsible for terrible things. The physical compulsion types of OCD are the lesser concerns that most therapists see. But most OCD patients have an obsession around harming people. They're terrified that they're going to harm someone they love. It's an unwanted, repetitive, and distressing thought. People with harming obsessions are usually the sweetest people in the world, and the thought of harming others is heartbreaking to them, but the thoughts are repetitive all day long in their head. Some people can have OCD related to religion. It could be an existential obsession like, what's the point of life? OCD is a disorder of uncertainty. The more uncertain someone is, the more anxiety they feel. Some people in a relationship have an obsession with ruminating on what if they cheated on their partner or did they pick the right person or even thinking, you know, what if I'm gay and I thought I was straight this whole time? It sounds normal, but for someone with OCD, this is an extreme degree of repetitive thoughts about all of this, which causes them to do safety behaviors and compulsions to control their obsession. There are terms called egodystonic and egosyntonic. So people with OCD have obsessions that are clinically egodystonic, meaning that the obsession doesn't line up with their values. For example, the patient who would never harm their child but has intrusive thoughts about harming their child, it's distressing because it's so confusing. If you think that you have OCD from listening to this episode, don't try to figure it out on your own. Seek a therapist who can do a good assessment on you because if you have anxiety, you're not the best person to assess yourself. Often people with OCD even question their diagnosis and part of their OCD becomes obsessing on wondering whether or not they really have OCD. Maybe the diagnosis is a mistake and they're really a serial killer or a pedophile. That is a classic symptom of OCD as well. The work of exposure therapy is to change the way that someone responds to a thought. Instead of responding to an intrusive thought with importance and terror and the urge to solve it right away, the work is to treat the thought with no importance at all and even make fun of it to be creative. People with OCD usually are very creative people. And developing OCD has a nature and nurture component. Genetics are strong. And if you are raised with strict rules and strong beliefs, that kind of nurturing can impact OCD. Think of the brain as having a pair of brakes and an accelerator like a car. And for the OCD person, their brake system is not connected very well, and it's hard to pump the brakes on their intrusive thoughts. There is an umbrella of OCD-related disorders, and OCD falls under panic disorder, health anxiety, phobias, hair pulling, skin picking, and social anxiety. OCD is often misdiagnosed as ADHD, 
bipolar, and most often generalized anxiety. The most common misdiagnosis is unfortunately from doctors who can be dismissive and tell patients things like, you just think too much. The best treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention, as well as an SSRI, which is an antidepressant, at an OCD dose. Mindfulness practice and acceptance and commitment therapy are great solutions as well. And having compassion towards working on your OCD doesn't mean taking a break and it's fairies and unicorns. Wise compassion says, I got you. Let's face this fear. But by facing this fear, you're going to get your life back. Let's do that. The work of overcoming OCD is about facing fear and riding waves of really uncomfortable shit, but it's so rewarding and empowering if you can do it. The average person can see a pretty massive change in their OCD in about 24 sessions or within a year. You cannot shock your therapist with your thoughts. They've heard it all before. You're unique, but your thoughts aren't. Kimberly wrote a book called The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD, and you can get it by going to the link in the show notes. And Kimberly also has an online school to help people with OCD called ERP School. You can face your fears in your own time in your pajamas. And again, that link is in the show notes. I learned a lot today. I hope you did too. Again, just want to normalize everything for everybody before they take that step in in, um, getting some help with anything. At least want you to not feel so afraid going into taking your next step. You can email the show at anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. And please give the show five-star reviews on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend, tweet about it. My Twitter is at Jen Kirkman. My Instagram is at Jen Kirkman. I love when people tag me in their social media, then I can retweet it and then more people find out about the show. Thank you all so much for listening. And again, yes, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.
everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 